0: Good morning, good to see you all here today. Well, we have been talking over the last four weeks about discipleship and what it means to engage and evangelize our world, establish and equip our people. And on week number one of this little series, it's interrupted our uh, 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 sermons on Luke, Jackson answered the question, why make disciples? And he explained that we make disciples because God is, is saving a people for himself, uh, bringing individuals out of spiritual darkness into his marvelous light and thereby preparing them to meet Jesus on the last day. Week number two, Eric Tonus answered the question, what is a disciple. And he showed us that a disciple is someone who is depending on, learning from, being transformed by Jesus. It's it's a holistic process. As Eric put it, disciples don't just learn about the realities or the facts of the king, they learn about the king himself. Week number three Kenny answered the question, how are disciples made? And he taught us that disciple making is a process that can be summed up in four words, each of which begin with the letter P. First, disciples are made by proclaiming, proclaiming God's word. And that can happen by way of a sermon from a pulpit or a conversation over a cup of coffee. Second, disciples are made by praying. Praying in the Spirit. Praying for help as we speak God's Word. Praying for help as others hear God's Word spoken. And in both cases, not praying in a perfunctory kind of manner, but rather praying in a personal one. Because God is a personal God. He's a person. We've been created in his image as person. So remember, disciples don't just learn about the realities of the king. As Eric said, they get to know the king, the person himself. Third, Kenny told us that disciples are made by persevering, persevering over time. Uh, Disciple-making is neither a one-time project or something that uh, we do on the side, you know, like woodworking or sewing or biking. Now, disciple-making is a lifestyle. And I was reflecting on that, and I was, I was remembering Johnny Appleseed, John Chapman, Johnny Appleseed. You may recall uh, from elementary school, he went from Pennsylvania to Indiana, right, liberally, sowing apple seeds along the way, the fruit of which wasn't always seen until after he uh, had moved on and was long gone. I like that. Because we're, in a sense, spiritual Johnny Appleseeds, traveling through life, liberally sowing and watering the seed of God's word, the fruit of which we may or may not see because the gospel, like a little seed, is, a, is a, uh, a time-released commodity, which reminds me of George Mueller, who prayed over a half century that a particular man would come to faith. And he finally did, after Mueller had died. It, it reminds me of Luke Short, who at the age of 103, came to faith in Christ as he was reflecting on a sermon that he had listened to when he was a teenager. It it reminds me of John Newton, who after coming to faith as an adult, wrote this about his mother who died when Newton was just seven years old. Newton said, she stored my memory with many valuable pieces, chapters, and portions of scripture. Catechism, hymns, and poems. I think for the encouragement of pious parents to go on in the good of doing their part faithfully, that is, to form their children's minds, I may properly propose myself as an instance. Though in the process of time I sinned away all the advantages of these early impressions, yet they were for a great while a restraint upon me. Uh, they returned again and again, and it was very long before I could wholly shake them off. And when the Lord at length opened my eyes, I found a great benefit from the recollection of them. Further, my dear mother, besides the pain she took with me, often commended me with many prayers and tears to God. And I doubt not, but I reaped the fruits of these prayers to this hour." persevere, be patient. Or as Paul puts it two times over in Second Corinthians 4, do not lose heart even in the face of spiritual and physical duress. Fourth, Kenny told us that disciples are made by remembering people. That people are God's fellow workers in the disciple making process. So we proclaim God's word. We pray in God's spirit. We persevere now to be received by Christ later. We work in partnership with God. Paul illustrated it like this. He said, I planted a Paulist water, but God gave the growth. Therefore, he concludes, we are God's fellow workers. 1 Corinthians 3. And it's this fourth bit here to which Kenny introduced us last Sunday that we want to drill down on this morning. So as in previous weeks, um, I'm going to frame it up as a question. And the question is this, who makes disciples? And the answer, as has already been stated, and, and is the point of this morning's sermon, disciples are made by God's people in partnership with God himself. Now, on the one hand, we see that with crystal clarity at the end of Matthew 28 and the the flagship passage on disciple-making. It begins there in verse 19, go and make disciples. And then it concludes with Jesus, the Son of God, saying, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So it's, it's clear enough, right, right there, God's people, not on their own, but in partnership with Jesus, make disciples. But as clear as that is in principle, it, it, it can be difficult to work out in practice. Because while we say disciples are made by God's people in partnership with God himself. This is what we hear. What what we hear is disciples are made by pastors in cooperation with God himself. Now that's that's an error that we come by honestly. And usually in one of two ways, either by way of bad theology that has its roots buried deep in the soil of the medieval church. In other words, it's it's an error that's been around for a long time. Or by way of an absence of theology that makes the church look less like something out of the Bible and more like something out of corporate America. I remember hearing Warren Wiersbe on that point say this once upon a time. He said, it's a church where the elders are the board of the corporation, the pastors are the working members of the board who do the business of the corporation, and the congregants are the investors who show up each week to see how their money's doing. Now, gratefully, that image really doesn't bear itself out to any significant degree here at grace, but it does elsewhere, uh, places where I've worked. And it's a temptation against which we must fight, so we need to diligently guard ourselves against that corporate model of disciple-making, and we need to consciously grow in a biblical model which requires that we understand in principle and in practice that disciples are made by God's people in partnership with God himself. So a question right up front that's worth asking is, what does that look like? Well, it it looks like you. It, It looks like you as an individual. It looks like me as one who is actively involved as a minister of God's word and more specifically a speaker of God's word. And these are the couple of things at which we're gonna look uh, more in depth over the balance of our time here this morning. First, we're all ministers of God's word and that's a fact that's a plainly established in 1 Peter chapter 2, where we read that God's people, all of us here, are a holy priesthood. That is, we're ministers set apart by God himself. That's there in, in verse number 5, 1 Peter 2. And that God's people are a royal priesthood. All of us here whether you knew it or not when you walked in, are part of a royal priesthood. That is, were ministers related to the king himself. That's there in verse number nine. So the fact is plainly established here in 1 Peter 2, but it's a fact that's also explained here in 1 Peter 2. Um, As ministers or priests were engaged in at least a couple of priestly tasks, one of which Emily read, For us already this morning there in verse 5. We are to offer up to God spiritual sacrifices. Now, what does that even mean? Well, this particular passage here doesn't tell us, but when we begin to flip around the New Testament, we learn that we offer up spiritual sacrifices to God When we give him our bodies, not for our glory, but for his, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 10. Our behavior and our benevolences, Philippians 4, Hebrews 13. Our praise and our thanks, even in the midst of difficulties, Ephesians 5, Hebrews 13. But notice here in verse number five that our sacrifices are made acceptable to God through Christ's sacrifice. Our spiritual sacrifices, those are, those are merely tributes. They, they, they are merely testimonies to the great once and for all physical sacrifice that Jesus paid on our behalf and that put us in partnership with God. How beautiful. We sang about it earlier this morning. Our sins are many, but his mercy is more. Our sins are forgiven, and the sacrifices we offer on his behalf merely point to his great sacrifice and put us in partnership with him. How amazing. Also as priests or ministers of God's word, we are to proclaim the word. Take a look at verse number 9 there, 1 Peter 2. You are a royal priesthood. For what purpose? That you may proclaim the excellencies excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's the gospel. So proclaiming the gospel isn't just for pastors, it isn't just for preachers, it isn't just for Christian professors. Proclaiming the gospel is for every member of God's people every member of his royal priesthood, which is you as well as me. So I got a question for you. When was the last time you proclaimed the gospel? In uh, conversational tones, in your own words, shaped by 1 Peter 2 verse 9. For some of us, probably for most of us, a conversation like that is pretty scary. Aren't you glad it wasn't for the person who spoke the gospel to you? Maybe it was. Obedience has its dividends. But that's why an understanding of the following three things can put us in a better place to be speakers of God's word. First, an understanding of scripture Second, an understanding of ourselves, and finally an understanding of God himself. So let's begin with an understanding of the scripture. Now in the Old Testament, speaking God's word was referred to as prophesying and was done by prophets, that is the few on whom God's spirit rested. And in Numbers chapter 11, the Old Testament prophet Moses declared this. He declared, "Would it all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Well that hopeful declaration of Moses was finally realized in the New Testament in the book of Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 2 and the uh, apostles were all together on that day and I'm going to begin reading from Acts 2 verse 2 where it says uh, there suddenly came from heaven A sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. This thing that was once reserved uh, uh, only to rest on prophets is now on them, as we'll see in a moment, on others as well. And they began to speak in tongues, that is, known languages, languages that were not not their own. And uh, as the Spirit gave them utterance, Now, they were also dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation or ethnicity under heaven. And at this sound, that is this this mighty rushing wind sound, they came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing the apostle speak in his own language. And they were amazed and they were astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own language? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, Peter goes on to explain that this, this momentous day, this, this, uh, this one for which uh, Moses had, had, had hopefully longed, was the fulfillment of Joel chapter two verses twenty-eight and twenty-nine the day on which, as Tony Payne put it, the democratized outpouring of spirit-filled speech took place? What does that mean? Well, it was the day on which the Spirit fell—not just on Peter, whom we'd expect it to fall on. I mean, the guy has over thirteen hundred churches named after him. Yeah, that's the kind of guy that gets the Spirit. No, on everyone. Everyone present. The day on which the mighty works of God there in verse 11 and the facility and ease with which God's people spoke those words as promised by the prophet Joel took place. Now, if all this began and ended in Acts 2, that would be one thing. But it doesn't. It just keeps going right through the New Testament as the foundation for discipleship, learning and depending on Christ, being transformed by Jesus himself. So in Romans 15, Paul is encouraged by those in that church, and I quote, who are able to instruct one another in God's word. That's discipleship. In 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Paul encourages the, the spirit-filled speaking of God's word by God's people for the purpose of building each other up in Christ. That's discipleship. In Ephesians 4, Paul explains that God's people are equipped for the work of ministry, and I quote, which is building up the body of Christ by speaking the truth, that is God's word, in love. That's discipleship. Colossians 3, the the ministry to which Paul encourages this church is one, and I quote, of teaching and admonishing one another. That's discipleship. So God's people speaking God's word to one another is an imperative of the Scripture. Scripture. It's the foundation of discipleship and understanding that puts us in a better place to be speakers of God's words. Second thing that puts us in a better place to be speakers of God's words is understanding ourselves. And here's the straight-up fact. The gospel, by God's own admission... Is scandalous. In fact, that word scandal, English word scandal, comes from the Greek scandalon, which is a New Testament description of the gospel. It's dangerous, it cuts against the grain of the culture in which we live. And so, when it comes to speaking God's words, we can easily feel overwhelmed by a sense of embarrassment over it or a lack of confidence in our ability to articulate it. But while our reluctance is great and our sin is even greater, the gospel, the good news, is greater still. From time to time, Charles Simeon would thoughtfully recall The rebellion from which he'd been saved he'd sit down in a chair and look out the window of his rooms over the city of cambridge and remember the depth of his rebellion because it reminded him of the greatness of god's salvation the beauty of his grace and no doubt the fact that by way of the gospel he held the key to the cell of sin in which he used to be trapped and those among whom he lived continued to be trapped. And we have that same key. Those of us that know Christ have that same key in our possession. And growing in that reality can keep embarrassment from standing between us and those to whom we need to proclaim the gospel. Now you may say, I, okay, I get it. Embarrassment's never an excuse for Uh, sharing this life-changing message. I mean, look what it's done in my life, and I know it's as good for others as well, but the fact of the matter is I just don't have much confidence in my ability to communicate it. Well, reframing what it means to proclaim the gospel can be helpful in this regard, because we tend to think of gospel proclamation happening on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, from behind a lectern or in a pulpit by somebody with a title attached to their name. But as we've seen, speaking God's words isn't for some members of God's holy and royal priesthood, but it's for all members. It's for everybody here in this room who has a relationship with God in Christ. And while it can happen from a platform, as hopefully it's happening right now, it can also happen in other settings as well. So here's some examples. I, when I was growing up and my parents invited guests over either for dinner or the night, to, to, to spend the night, my dad always prayed before we ate. Uh, and he, he always liberally folded in portions of God's word as he did. And my mother, my dear mother, made it a requirement that guests who stayed in our house and were with us on Sunday morning would come to church with us. And I can't remember one who ever refused. That's discipleship. Bringing others along as you move toward Christ, even with house guests. And most of them, as, as I was thinking about this, weren't Christians. I mean, we didn't have a lot of Christian friends when I was growing up. We were friends with those at our church, but our broader spectrum were not. Here's another example. For several months, our family has been gathering on most nights of the week at nine o'clock to read a portion of the Bible. Maybe a chapter, maybe just a section. And sometimes we'll hear from each other But whether we do or not, we always hear from God. That's discipleship. That's bringing others along as we move toward Christ, even within the regular rhythms of the week in the family home. Here's another example. A few weeks ago, a couple of buddies and I were enjoying a a high-altitude lunch along a creek in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Now this wasn't right off the trail, we'd scrambled up the side of the hill and tucked ourselves into it where there was a little pool that we had discovered. So we were just uh, opening up our lunch and about to eat when, bing, here comes an unannounced visitor, uh, uh, interrupting the, uh, the uh, beauty of our fellowship. And um, what I consider to be an annoyance, I mean this is the kind of guy that I had. I was in the mountains to escape. (laughs) My buddy saw as an opportunity. And so he says, you know, hey, we just started our lunch but we haven't yet prayed, why don't you join us? And so he he breaks out in prayer. And he thanks God for the creation. And he thanks God for the food we're about to eat. And he thanks God for our new friend. (laughs) All in ways that were accessible to this guy. terms of the words he was using, and were entirely consonant with God's word as well. And by way of that prayer, my, my buddy was engaging and evangelizing this man with whom we ended up talking at some length, and he was equipping me how to turn an annoyance into an opportunity for the gospel. Shows you what a twisted heart your pastor has, but... We're all in this together. That's discipleship, bringing others along as we move toward Christ, even on the trail at 8,000 feet. Here's another example. I know a couple who buy season seats for one of the LA teams so that they can invite persons whom they want to engage or evangelize or further establish in the gospel, that's discipleship, bringing others along as we move toward Christ, even in a crowded stadium of 50,000 people. Here's another example. Yesterday, almost 30 women, 29 women, were instructed on how to meet with one other woman to read the Bible. Some women are going to meet with Another woman who needs to be evangelized. Others are going to meet with another woman who needs to be further established in the church. Still others are going to meet with one who needs to be better equipped to serve Christ. But every woman will be doing discipleship, bringing others along as they move toward Christ, even over an open Bible and a cup of coffee. Here's another example. Every week... Grace groups gather following the Sunday morning sermon, sometimes later in the week. Core groups gather following the Wednesday night talk. In large part for the purpose of helping each other put shoe leather on the sermons that we hear. That's what it means to do discipleship. To to, to bring others along as we move toward Christ even in somebody's living room, somebody's backyard, up in the youth room. So while proclaiming God's Word can be intimidating, recalling the greatness of the gospel can help us overcome our embarrassment of it, and reframing what it means to proclaim God's Word can heighten our confidence in our ability to speak it. I, I, I love what New Testament scholar Claire Smith points out when she said, m- most of this is her, some of it's me. She says, uh, the New Testament model of education is not a classroom model, but a community one. The growth of God's people isn't measured by classroom performance. It goes on, but I'm just going to hop off here for a moment because <laughs> as I was getting ready this morning, it reminded me of my... Uh, my days as a student at Talbot Seminary. I, I started seminary way too young. I was right out of college, I was still 21 years old. I was in there taking notes, you know, dutifully taking my notes. And I'd be the guy who raised my hand and said, is this gonna be on the test? Well, around me there were other guys, older guys whom I could tell but I couldn't quite articulate. They were, they were writing for their lives because they understood that what they were hearing was not only of value to their ministry, but to them. Growth of God's people isn't measured by classroom performance, but a common life in which each member is a teacher and learner. Each member. And again, this morning I, I was just thinking about that, and I was remembering, I was talking to Eric Tonis out there in the patio, and a couple of people came and joined our conversation, and this one person said, you know, I they're kind of lamenting the fact that they had never been formally discipled. And Eric said, Well, you've discipled me in this way, in that way, and another way. And it was beautiful because this person brightened up, and oh, I never realized that. And besides, Eric tonis he doesn't need anything from us. He knows everything. He's the dispenser of all. No. He needs us. He needs you as much as we need him. Everybody's a teacher. Everybody's a learner. That's what it means. Whatever this phrase means, it's been kicked around over the past few years. Doing life together. I just want to do life together. with somebody. That's what it means to do life together to teach to and learn from each other. Finally, third thing that puts us in a better place to be speakers of God's word is an understanding of God. Remember, disciples are made by God's people in partnership with God himself. As Paul said to the Corinthians, we are God's co Workers, as Paul put it to Timothy, he said at my first offense, no one came to stand by me, all deserted me. But you know what, the Lord stood with me and he strengthened me so that the message might be not just gotten out there, left in a, you know, on a park bench. No, that it might be fully proclaimed. God partners with us by way of his word. And that's why for those of us that fill this pulpit, stand behind this lectern every Sunday morning, modeling the primacy of God's Word is so important. Modeling an expository approach to God's Word is so important. Not turning other places to see what this one or that one has to say about the Bible, but but, but trying to learn from it ourselves. Modeling the purpose of God's Word for us, which is to declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light is so important. So let's wrap this up. Ever since uh, returning from our Sierra trip a few weeks ago, I've been comparing life on the trail to life in the church as we make our way through this world, and uh, it's been a helpful comparison, and one made especially famous uh, centuries ago by uh, John Bunyan and his book, Pilgrim's Progress, and if you haven't read it, you need to read it because uh, you'll be encouraged by it. And, and, and the contemporary English version's okay, but it, if you can get through the, the English in which Bunyan read, all the better, because it also has the uh, Marginal Bible references to which he's referring all the way through. It's a great, it's a great read. Well, I'm, I'm not going to recount the plot for you uh, this morning other than to point out a couple of, of themes that run throughout this book. First, the trail from here to the end of life is narrow. And it's difficult. It's difficult, Two, The Lord helps us along that trail. And he helps us by way of his word and his word through our fellow travelers. So as you go along, remember that you're a minister of God's word. You're your priest. You are a minister of God's word, a word that is sacrificially modeled and regularly spoken to those with whom you share the trail. That's what it means to make disciples in partnership with God himself, even as we all move along toward meeting Jesus on the last day. Let's pray. So Lord, I I pray that you'd help us today to to change our way of thinking about all of this, that discipleship isn't something that's done for us, it's something that's done by all of us for one another. May we have minds that uh, are quick to speak God's word, the oracles of God as it were, as Peter says, and are willing to sacrifice our bodies, our behavior and our possessions for the sake of drawing attention as tributes, as testimonies to the great sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. All these things we pray in his name, amen.